The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. It's time for a different take on spirituality for the modern world. Welcome to Big Universe with Jim Lefter. Welcome to Big Universe on Unity Online Radio. I'm Jim Lefter. I'll be your host today. I'm a spiritual journeyman and media producer type guy. I run a website with online courses called youthrivehere.com. And I'm at the Center for Spiritual Living, Greater Baltimore, cslgreaterbaltimore.org. I have to tell you that my co-host is spiritual rebel Sarah Bowen. Always happy to have Sarah on. Sarah is the author of Spiritual Rebel, a positively addictive guide to finding deeper perspective and higher purpose. Hi, Sarah. How are you doing today? I'm pretty good, Jim. Excited to talk to you again. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Um, we're going to be talking about magic today, um, different perspectives on on magic what that is with richard smalley and i wonder did you ever do the other kind of magic the the you know magic pull a rabbit out of the hat kind of thing you know when i was a kid i remember this you know my dad was a preacher and so he and my mom were gone a lot they were really social with all these things at the church and we had one babysitter uh, who was a guy which was weird at that time most babysitters were you know were teenage girls but we had this guy named roger who was an aspiring magician and he used to come over and bring all this stuff with him when he would babysit and he would do all these tricks and my sister and i would just sit there and be like "Ooh, ah and then <laughs> and then we'd go to the little store down the street you know like the one that sold the dungeons and dragons dice right and the magic tricks and all the like right. cool stuff that wasn't cool at that time but is cool now of course right and buy these little magic tricks and yeah i didn't have the skill for it i was Me so disappointed either. Me either. I thought it was very cool. Um, but, uh, you know, I got one of those little mag boxes of magic tricks and all that stuff when I was little. Could not do it for the life of me. I still can't do any of that stuff. There, You know, there's a skill to it. We have a friend who does card tricks. And, you know, he'll do them in front of a group of people where he has you pick a card. And the next thing you know, it's outside the house stuck to the window. And, and I still cannot figure out how he does these things. But what I think is interesting when you think about spirituality and magic is that idea of where we put our awareness and being open to mystery. So when I, when I see him do the card tricks or someone does a magic trick, I have like a dual response. One is, how are you cheating me? And then the other one is like, wow, isn't that, isn't that cool? Can I open up to the fact that I can't quite figure out how everything in the world works. 
I mean, there's a lot, I can't figure out how it works, but you know, the big spectacular things that they're magic. Well, I have to tell you that my wife can figure these things out very quickly and very easily. I am dumbfounded. <laughs> I, I cannot figure them out. Um, so, you know, I, I think depending on how your mind works too, is how you perceive things. And I'm interested in Richard's um, book today because it's not, it's, it's different. It's like different approaches to what you might consider magic. Um, and I, I think that's interesting because there are some things in there that I, I didn't really think of as being magic. I thought of them as kind of a different philosophy. So I'm interested in finding out more about that. We, we use that word in a lot of ways. I know um, I had a lot of students lately who were Wicca practitioners, and I was super curious about that. I didn't know a lot about that tradition. And so I, I underwent a, a year of study with it with a group to learn a little more and just how they would position the word magic and what that means in an earth-based spirituality as well. I think I think we use the word to mean a lot of things. You know, we can mean it yeah, to yeah. mean kids, you know, tricks that we buy at the dollar store. We can use it in a Harry Potter sense. We can use it in a new thought sense. We can, you know, we use it in a lot of different ways. So I'm, I'm curious to talk to Richard more about, about how he positions it. Harry Potter, my gosh, that's the ultimate magic as far as I'm concerned. Do you know that after the Harry Potter books came out, that there was a big increase in how many people wanted to purchase owls as personal pets? Really? Yeah. And it was a big problem because owls don't really belong in houses. No, no, I no, wouldn't think and, so. And you have to do some things to them that aren't quite nice to keep them. But there was a, a market. I read a paper a couple couple months ago that said there was a remarkable increase in how many kids wanted owls. So we do have to be careful when we write our stories <laughs> about what ideas we might be putting in each other's heads. We do have to be careful because, frankly, people are weird. Oh, I, I, I don't identify with that comment at all, Jim. <laughs> Yay to the weirdos. You had an article in uh, Recent Spirituality and Health about robotic pets. What, what I, is that? I did. You know, I'm really interested in AI and in um, different intelligences or how we treat, uh, you know, you know I'm, I'm interested in how we treat other species, but how do we treat technology that can think? And so I was digging into that a little bit and found these robotic pets they have now for people who are older, aging, or dementia, Alzheimer's, et cetera, et cetera, who may not be able to take care of a dog, like they you know, may not be able to take it outside, or they forget to feed it, or they may be going into assisted living where they aren't allowed to have a pet. So they have these amazing dogs and cats now that they purr when you touch them. And when they hear your voice, they turn their heads. And I watched some videos of, of how people respond to this. And it's really amazing how important touch is, mm -hmm. how important connection with another creature, even if it's a robotic pet. Hmm. So, you know, our love of C-3PO and R2-D2 and all of that, I think that was the formation for me of, you know, how cool droids are. Uh, but now we have some furry ones that are really helping aging people not uh, be quite so lonely. That's fascinating. You know, I have to say, I, I don't know what to think about AI. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand it better. Um, it frightens me a little bit, to be honest, because it I should. Yeah, it should. Yeah. Because there I think are so. doomsday predictions about, you know, AI taking over and all that stuff. And I just don't know what to think about it. You know, I think it's any technology. If we think back to when like Gutenberg and the printing press 
and how freaked out people were about what was going to happen when people would be able to read scripture for themselves. Hmm. Like that Interesting. was a catastrophe, yeah, yeah. right? So each new technology that we have, we have these things of, oh, look at the wonderful things they can do. And also like this scares the heck out of me. What if this gets out of control? Because, you know, humans, we tend to overdo it. Yes, we do. We're, <laughs> we've not, overdone always, the... <laughs> we're not always careful. No, as, we've as, overdone as much, the planet, right? We've as really much overdone science it. fiction has told us, yeah. you know, that is an important lesson that we still have challenges with yeah so i think it, it it's also interesting when you start to look at uh, self-driving cars yes and the and the ethics and the morals behind that of if my car is going to crash into your car how do the cars decide which of us is more worthy of living mm. oh wow yes yeah so yes. so maybe another episode on that but today we'll we'll stay in the magical frame of a picture of you here I think that's good. I think that's good. So are you ready for our dueling inspirational quotes? I am. You want to go first? Okay, here we go. You know quite well, deep within you, that there is a single magic, a single power, a single salvation, and a single happiness. And that is called loving. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Who, who was that? That's Herman Hess. Mm, wonderful. I like the connection of magic with loving. Yes. All right, here's mine. The truth is that the inner self of every human being is supremely great and supremely lovable. Everything is contained in the self. The divine principle that creates and sustains this world pulsates within us as our own self. It scintillates. It scintillates in the heart and shines through all our senses. Oh my, you went loving too. Look at that. We're so connected. Is that Ernie? Actually, it's not. It's Swami Muktananda. Is that right? Yeah. And I actually got that from Julia Cameron's book of prayers uh, and declarations called Blessings. But I thought that was wonderful. Yeah, I like that. I know a Swami, you know. You do? Tell me about that. She's actually a friend of mine. She went through Swami training and uh, I couldn't tell you exactly what discipline, but I always think it's cool to be able to name drop a Swami. <laughs> Isn't that interesting how we have to be careful not to exotic size. Wait, is that, <laughs> that's not the word, is it? Um, but to, you know, there's certain words that um, really pique our interest. They do. They yeah. do. All right. Are you ready to jump into the episode? Yeah, let's get magical. Let's do it. Here's Martha Creek with a Unity Moment. This is Martha Creek, marthacreek.com to contact me. This is offered inspired by A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle and Discovering Our Life's Purpose. If peace is really what you want, then you will choose peace. If peace mattered to you more than anything else, and if you truly knew yourself to be spirit rather than this little me, you would remain less reactive, absolutely alert when confronted with challenging times, 
challenging people or circumstances. You would immediately accept the situation as it is and then become one with it rather than try attempt to separate yourself from it. Wowza. So can it be that simple? If peace is what I really want, then I am going to choose peace. So in this situation, I am choosing peace. Traffic doesn't flow. I choose peace. They didn't invite me to their party. I'm choosing peace. They did not, um, they talked about me, gossiped about me. Like, so be it. I am choosing peace in this very situation, in this very challenge. Yes, it was hurtful. Yes, I'm upset. Yes, I felt left out. Yes, I felt not good enough. Nevertheless, I am choosing peace in this situation. I am going to stay more objective about this to see how normal this is, to see how their responses and their actions are based on their own belief systems their own state of their own mind. So I'm not going to subject myself to it. More objective, less subjected to it. So then I can practice then staying in the higher room of my own mind instead of regressing into my little afraid, pitiful, pathetic, afraid, mad self, egoic self, and Without trying to make myself like the situation, I don't have to like it. I don't have to love it. And my power lies, and friends, your power lies in you accepting the situation as it is and then choosing what your own sane, sensible action will look like. Liberation, freedom, and a life with purpose, changing the world, one thought at a time, one action at a time, living your own purpose for life. Richest blessings and love, friends. Contact me, marthacreek.com, for classes, for support, for videos, any way in the world that you can be supported. Funniest thing guy, Ed Biagioti, joins us with a new segment. Hello, everybody. My name is Edward Biagioti. I am the co-host of Funniest Thing with Daryl and Ed right here on Unity Online Radio. And it is my pleasure to be with you today on Big Universe to talk about the magic of using your mind for good. What happens when we consciously direct our mind affirmatively into the flow of life, into the truth of who we are with meditation, affirmative prayer, inspired reading, all of these things, whether it's yoga or surfing or being kind to others, when we consciously direct our mind into the flow of God, which means the flow of good, that's when the magic happens. And the beauty of this kind of magic is it's not a trick that we perform for an audience, but we know behind the scenes that it's really something, an illusion. This is the kind of magic trick 
that happens, and even we are surprised, even we are delighted as things happen in the funniest ways, in the most unexpected ways, in ways that not only benefit us, but that benefit everyone in our lives in these amazing, better-than-expected ways. In fact, that's why we call our show Funniest Thing with Daryl and Ed, because when we direct our mind consciously, when I choose to step out boldly on faith, and something turns out in a better-than-expected divinely ordered, miraculous way, I'll say to my friends, funniest thing, you're never going to believe what happened. Have a great day, everybody. And now it's time for our interview. Richard Smalley is editor of Quest, Journal of the Theosophical Society in America. He's the author of 11 books on spirituality, philosophy, and religion. His new book, audio and video series, The Truth About Magic, is just being released is being released soon. Uh, his previous book, A Theology of Love, Reimagining Christianity Through A Course in Miracles, was published in, two, in November 2019. His other works include Inner Christianity, A Guide to the Esoteric Tradition, Forbidden Faith, The Secret History of Gnosticism, and Supernatural, Writings on an Unknown History. Formerly editor of Gnosis, a journal of the Western Inner Traditions, Richard lectures nationwide and has been featured on numerous YouTube videos. His website is innerchristianity.com. Welcome to Big Universe, Richard. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's awesome to have you. You have such a, a breadth of knowledge uh, regarding uh, spirituality and uh, and philosophy and just real excited to talk to you about your book and, and all kinds of things. I guess you got you got deep into uh, this at an early age, or when did you start the, down the path of uh, look, looking deeply into spirituality? Well, my father was always interested in these subjects when I was growing up in the 60s, and he had around a lot of the books that were around at that time, like um, books by Edgar Cayce and similar uh, types of things. Books on reincarnation were coming out. Uh, and um, that kind of went into dormancy when I was in adolescence and um, in college. I started to become more interested again, uh, you know, as I finished as an undergraduate. And I went to Oxford for a couple of years after that. And there I took part in a Kabbalah group, which was a small one, but um, one that was very influential in my life. And in 1980, I moved to San Francisco and found out about the whole panoply of spiritual things that were going on out there, one of which was A Course in Miracles, which uh, I've studied now for uh, uh, close to 40 years, and um, mm -hmm. has obviously been a great influence in my life. It was certainly uh, a major influence on my book, A Theology of Love, which I imagine we'll talk about at some point. Uh, then I explored various other things uh, in my you know, 20s, 30s, and on. Um, in 1986, I started writing for a magazine called Gnosis, which was a journal of the Western esoteric traditions. And uh, I started as editor of Gnosis in 1990, and that was a that was a fascinating uh, process. Gnosis uh, was put to sleep in 1999 for financial reasons, uh, but it's still actually I think it's still a legendary magazine. I often, with all the books I've read and all the lectures I've done. People still most often come up to me and, and say, oh, yeah, I remember Gnosis. That was a great magazine. Um, going a little further, I uh, started working for the Theosophical Society in 2005, and I've been editor of uh, their magazine, Quest, as you mentioned, um, basically for the last uh, 
well, 12 years. So there's a lot, and I've been exposed to a lot. I've met a lot of um, very interesting people and read a fair amount. So that's a, that's a, a capsule summary of my uh, uh, spiritual autobiography. Awesome. So you you read you write about and read about all these different kinds of uh, spiritual philosophies and paths. Is there one particular that speaks out to you um, as a path that is predominant for you, or are there do do you engage in a lot of the different perspectives? What's your? I just wondered what your take on what on that was. Well, my first introduction, as I said, uh, to anything really seriously along these lines, was at a Kabbalah group in Oxford. Um, and I was only there for two years, uh, but I went to it. I've kept in touch with the people since then. Uh, I still correspond with them. And the Kabbalistic Tree of Life, I mean, this is not a specifically Jewish uh, version of the Kabbalah. It, actually, very few people in these groups were Jews. Uh, but it, it, the Kabbalistic Tree of Life gave me a certain framework for understanding uh, and fitting a lot of different things in. Other influences have been A Course in Miracles, uh, again, which is a uh, subject of uh, theology of love. Uh, uh, Gurdjieff work. Mm -hmm. uh, I also studied Tibetan Buddhism uh, at the Nyingma Institute in Berkeley for a few years in the 80s. Uh, so those are probably the, the most salient ones. And um, it's possible to fit them together. Uh, and it's possible to harmonize them in a way as long as you don't try to uh, force them all into the same straitjacket um, sure. because they are they are saying different things. They um, cast different lights uh, and um, perspectives on one another. But you know, it's not really possible or worthwhile. I would say to think uh, they're all uh, you know the same or they can all be squeezed together uh, in any simplistic way. Sure, sure. Well, that's totally understandable. Um, so the, your latest book, The Truth About Magic. Um, what I'm curious what magic is to you you have you have a large variety of different kinds of thoughts on magic in the book what what does the word magic mean to you well in the first place you know it has to be set aside from stage magic of the David Copperfield variety which has the same name uh, you know that stuff is fascinating and entertaining I don't know anything about it I don't know how to do it uh, so uh, Sarah, I'm not Sarah and I, Sarah and I agree with you on that. We were just talking about how we have no idea. Yeah, how to... no skill in there. <laughs> <laughs> just uh, you know, something either develop or not. So magic is basically making, uh, sort of shaping reality by, in a sense, taking a thought and infusing it with vital energy called. Prana. Now that there are other forms of magic, um, and the old magic uh, before, say, 1850, had a lot to do with evoking spirits. Uh, and people still do that. Um, you know, I think the results are always rather uh, ambiguous because let's you know let's grant the possibility that uh, spirits exist in the unseen realm. You're basically. Uh, contacting one of them and trying to force them to do something for you, um, whether they want to or not, uh, which is a lot of, <laughs> a lot of magical compulsion. And um, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, it's reasonable to think that they might not like it or uh, sabotage it or rebel, which is why there's always been, uh, you know, such, um, as I say, a, a kind of ambiguous legacy in that kind of magic. 
what I'm talking about now, where is something that I, I see having developed really since uh, the 1850s, when you're really, in a sense, it is thought power, although it can be reinforced uh, and is reinforced by things like ritual. Uh, and you can make this as elaborate or simple as you want. Uh, and you can kind of see where it goes. Uh, it's not without its pitfalls, as, as I think um, uh, you know you saw in my book, but it, um, uh, there is some real power to it. You put new thought and positive thinking and affirmations uh, in into the book on magic. And I, I've really never thought of them in that sense. Obviously, we're a new thought show or on Unity online radio and that sort of thing. I've never really put them under the category of magic. Tell me what why you put them there and, and what that means to you. Well, you know, as you know, new thought runs a whole gamut of kind of methods and teachings and techniques. But you are essentially in many of these, you are essentially visualizing what you want and focusing energy on it in the hopes that it will manifest in um, the real world. And um, that is similar to the kind of magic I'm talking about here. Uh, there are, of course, very different forms of it. Uh, I personally think it's a good idea to view your goal in a much more open-ended way rather than saying, you know, I want this then, or, uh, you, know, you know, I want to make X person fall in love with me, which is, um, almost always a bad idea. Um, someone said that kind of magic uh, only works um, on the practitioner and in reverse. So uh, it usually uh, uh, just blows up in your face. Mm -hmm. So it's a gamut. Um, and, but the idea that thoughts are a reality uh, and given a certain amount of energy and attention can have manifest uh, results in the world, I think is common both to new thought and to the kind of magic I've been talking about. Why do you think just the word, the label of magic sometimes feels scary to people? I mean, you just say magic in, in a non-stage you know, atmosphere, and, and some people just get scared about that. Well, basically every Hollywood movie about it is designed to make you as scared as possible. Uh, and of course, those movies are like really souped up. Um, things don't really happen that way uh, with you know pieces of furniture sliding across the rooms of the haunted house and that, maybe they do sometimes but um, they, they <laughs> they're certainly uh, aberrant occurrences the whole thing is is is, is made uh, to be spooky and this goes back in mass culture at least to Rosemary's baby a book which was published in the mid 60s and um, made into a very famous film in 1968 which brought this whole um, you know, dark side satanic magic really to the core. Um, the author of that book, Ira Levin, I think wrote it as a horror book. I don't think he was uh, believed in it very seriously um, and he wasn't entirely thrilled about um, the consequences of it. Although as he said in a later interview, um, I haven't stopped cashing the checks. Uh, <laughs> that, um, but you know, that, uh, and that's kind of set the stage, the exorcist, um, the omen, um, and so magic has always had this um, kind of, um, the craft is another one, uh, has always had this really dark picture in it as portrayed by Hollywood. So that's what people think of first. Well, we'll be right back on Big Universe on Unity Online Radio.
Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to a slightly off-kilter look at spirituality. This is Big Universe with Jim Lefter. Welcome back to Big Universe on Unity Online Radio. So, Richard, I have a question about you. You talk about unseen worlds when when we talk about magic, and that's a lot of it. What do you mean by unseen worlds? Worlds that are not visible to the physical eye. And the minute you say that, you realize that there is a whole other world that is physically unseen, but uh, in another sense is seen reasonably clearly, which is the whole world of thoughts, dreams, images. Uh, one difference between that world and a physical world is this uh, world of thoughts is not generally publicly available. Uh, if you're thinking of, I don't know, say uh, a sunset, it, it would not necessarily mean that someone else in the room uh, will be thinking of a sunset as well. Whereas if you see an object in the room, you can generally expect that someone else will see this object. So these are in a sense unseen worlds, but they're very real. And we interact with them on a day-to-day a -day basis in our own kind of thoughts, daydreams and waking life, and in actual dreams in um, sleep states. So they're definitely real. Magic, the theories of occult magic would say that these, this kind of the world of thoughts, thought forms, actually in a way underlies the physical world. And nothing can come into existence in the physical world unless it exists in a prior, uh, in a, in a thought form, just as you have to have an idea uh, to take it in a very simplistic way, just so that you have an idea of the cake you're going to bake before you can actually, you know, make it happen. You you talk in the book, and I, I love this quote that, uh, you know, with, with regard to all these unseen worlds and all these, you know, judgments and uh, all this stuff, you, you talk about God is not the producer of a B-grade movie. And I love that. I think I love that too. I love that. <laughs> that needs to be a t-shirt or a coffee mug. <laughs> so what do you mean by that? There, as you know, it, there's this intense feeling about apocalypse, the end of the world that's always just about to come. We can trace this back historically. It goes back uh, to the Hebrew Bible and uh, the New Testament, the early Christians, uh, Christians who wrote the New Testament, that is, uh, definitely believed that the end of the world was coming and it was going to come in a fairly dramatic way. And this has kind of lingered in Christianity. There is a website, I don't remember its name, that has a list of all the years from 180 to the present in which someone somewhere predicted the end of the world. And there are a lot of them. Prince uh, said uh, 1999, you know, end of the world. <laughs> <Oops>. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, it's not going to happen that way. Right. Um, and in my book, The Truth About Magic, I, I talk a little bit about uh, what this kind of apocalyptic impulse means. One is uh, it's what psychologists call displacement, that you, is, you have a very real fear, uh, but you can't handle it. You can't touch it. So you displace it onto a remote thing that you basically kind of know isn't really going to happen. 
Well, one thing you and I, all, all three of us know is, uh, and everyone who's listening knows, is your world is going to come to an end in a few decades at most. That's true of all of us. Everybody knows this as an uh, irrefutable fact, mm -hmm. but this is disturbing on many levels. So you displace this onto an apocalypse uh, that you kind of know isn't really going to come. Uh, at some deep level. Furthermore, uh, even more scary than the idea of dying to many people, it's the idea of dying alone. So the idea that, you know, we're all going to go together when we go, you know, uh, and of course, we're on the side of the righteous and we're going to be saved. And of course, all those other bad people who hate us and dislike us are going to cry forever, uh, just adds more um, comfort to the idea. So can you talk a little bit about that, the context of what we're going through right now? I know that the idea of apocalypse has uh, probably never been closer in the last hundred years uh, to, on people's lips than right now with the pandemic and some of the things we're dealing with around the world. Do, do you have an opinion on, on that view? This apocalyptic habit in the Western mind runs very, very deep. And it runs so deep that it's in a sense outlasted uh, cultural belief in Christianity. Meaning that there are a lot of people who don't believe in Christianity uh, in any uh, recognizable form who still have this sense of, of dread coming. And uh, the mid uh, 20th century on, uh, it was uh, associated with nuclear holocaust. Yeah, sure. Uh, and uh, since in about the last 30 years, this has given way to um, an obvious uh, awareness of um, environmental destruction on a wide scale. Now, so, and, and it's, these concerns are very real. Yeah, uh, those bombs were there. They could have done as much damage um, as uh, was intended for them. Uh, the environmental uh, crisis we're having is very real, right? It, it is happening, but you know we still tend to think of it in, in, in apocalyptic terms as if it's the end of the world or the end of the world for humanity, which it probably isn't. Um, it probably isn't. Uh, things could could go very very badly. But um, as I also mentioned in uh, the truth about magic, uh, it, there's been long-standing traditions of many destructions of humanity uh, that have gone back. Uh, well, we don't even know. They, uh, they, these civilizations have vanished so much that we don't even know about. Uh, one example is Atlantis, uh, which according to Plato, who was the first source for that uh, uh, myth, uh, sank around 9600 BC, which was just exactly the time of the last ice age when the glaciers melted and there could well have been widespread flooding in some civilization in very much the area that Plato describes could have been sunk. Uh, similarly, I saw a map of the United States and it had like a blue border all around the coasts. And this map said, well, these are the parts of the United States that are gonna be underwater uh, by 2100 if global warming exists at its current rate. And, you know, hey, that makes the, the idea of Atlantis a lot more plausible because um, uh, if that happens, who's going to be, believe legends of, of a New York or a Los Angeles 10,000 years later? Yeah, sure, there was a place. Yeah, there's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> there's it's no been, New York. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just, a, it's just a, yeah, it's an old myth. That's a myth. Whether you find this all unbalanced, reassuring, or disturbing, I don't know. I mean, I, I am not attempting to minimize the kinds of, of crises and dangers uh, that I've been talking about. 
but there is an idea of uh, blending these very real issues, very real concerns with, as I say, this apocalyptic habit of mind that we've uh, basically been living with for the last 2000 years and solve the problems. Uh, it probably is best uh, to separate the reality of the problem from our projections. There's a whole, you, you go into so many different topics in this book, and I know we're going to just have the opportunity to kind of cherry pick a few of them um, because, you know, there's so much stuff here. Um, I wondered if you could, I'm, I'm just going to pull some things out and maybe you can tell me your thoughts on on, sure. on things like um, psychic powers. I guess I'm talking about, uh, you know, extra extrasensory perception and, and all these sort of things. Uh, is that real? Do you think that's real? Yeah, and everybody has them to some degree. Um, one reason we're not aware that we have them is they are often portrayed in terms of something like clairvoyance, like people are able to see auras and that kind of thing. Well, there are people who can, they're very rare. Uh, and most of them have been born with this talent. And the ones who are best at it have both been born with this talent and um, have had it developed or nurtured in their childhood uh, by a supportive environment. Very few of us have that kind of power, really. We do have a psychic power, uh, a kind of clairvoyance that is kinesthetic, that is to say, a felt sense of something, as in, this place really gives me the creeps. You're not seeing any evil spirits there, you know, uh, but you have the sense of like real dread or evil or malignancy in a room, or if you're in one of the great cathedrals of Europe or some other sacred spot, a, a feeling of sublimity. You're, you're perceiving this in a sense, uh, with, it's a psychic power because it's, it's not one of the five senses you're really talking about, uh, but you're feeling it kind of with your body and in kind of an intuitive way. And I think pretty much everybody, uh, you know, has this sense uh, and the smartest people at least um, take it into consideration when making Big decisions. I really, I, I uh, that guy just, I, I, I don't know, I don't, something I don't like about that guy. I, I don't think I'm going to go into business with him, you know, that kind of thing. So I think that that's very real. Well, I could go on, but maybe you want to go on to something else. I, I, <laughs> I, I, could, I could, you know, I could talk for a lot of it, but maybe you want to jump to another subject. I know another one that both Jim and I were interested in uh, was prophecy. You, you speak about that in the book too. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, theoretically, if you go back to what I was saying in the first segment, if everything manifests on this kind of world of the astral world, this world of thoughts uh, uh, and ideas before it manifests physically, it should be possible uh, to kind of get a glimpse of what's gonna happen um, before it does happen. Unfortunately, the vast majority of us, including me, I, I would say, um, this expectation of the future is so much conditioned by your your, your um, prejudices, your, your um, expectations, fears, desires, that it's almost impossible to get any kind of really clear sense of it. Uh, and then we have to deal with the fact that um, most prophecies just didn't come true. I mean, like the ones in the Bible. There are lots of prophecies in the Bible that didn't come true. Uh, like um, in the book of Ezekiel, for example, I believe it's chapter 26, Ezekiel prophesies that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, will surely conquer the city of Tyre uh, in present-day Lebanon. Well, this never happened. 
So in Ezekiel 29, it sort of says, well, I didn't exactly mean kind of, you know, conquer. I mean, in this very book, you know, he, he's cast a backtrack on his own prophecy that didn't work. And there are others. I mean, uh, that if that uh, uh, troubles uh, your faith in the infallibility of the Bible, well, I can't help that. Uh, so most of these uh, don't come true. I mean, the only prophecy I can really think of that actually came true uh, comes from like the kind of um, earth traditions, indigenous traditions who were uh, predicting great environmental upheavals at a time when the scientific world, you know, was barely thinking about such things. I'm talking like 40 years ago. Uh, and that very likely, well, they, these people have probably more of a visceral connection with the natural world than um, we uh, middle-class Americans in, in suburbia. So yeah, they were picking up something before um, even the scientists did. But most of the prophecies just didn't come true. I, I did write a book called The Essential Nostradamus. Um, and uh, you know, most of Nostradamus, just about all of Nostradamus prophecies didn't come true either. Hmm. So um, take that for what it's worth. Yeah, I was interested in your thoughts on astrology. I, I honestly, I have to tell you that I have, I have very mixed feelings about it. I do have, I have met people, I know people that are very deep into it and, you know, have some accuracy in what I, I see they, they give me. Um, but at the same time, I'm skeptical and I, I'm not exactly sure what I believe. What are your thoughts on astrology? I think uh, used by a, you know, expert astrologer, it can be a very, very powerful tool and an accurate one. Take a very obvious example. All of 2019, astrologers were talking about a conjunction of Pluto and Saturn in January of 2020. And this meant something big and something not too good. This planet is, uh, Saturn is the great malefic in um, astrological terms, and Pluto is the wrecking ball of planets, right? So when the two come together, something heavy is going to happen. Oh, what happened then? Um, that was just around the time the coronavirus hit. Mm -hmm. Now, the astrologers did not, were not able to predict that the coronavirus was hitting. Nobody, they didn't know any more about it. Uh, you know, we first heard about this happening in December of um, uh, 19, uh, and they didn't know anything more about it than that, but they knew something was coming. Uh, there were similar, uh, yeah, something really heavy is coming in, uh, you know, in um, 2001. And they, did they predict uh, the Twin Towers specifically? No, although symbolically, uh, well, the astrological symbolism for that is very is very accurate. I said Pluto is the, uh, it was swearing Saturn, I believe, or opposing. Anyway, uh, again, uh, Saturn established structure, Pluto the wrecking ball. So Saturn, uh, by the way, was in Gemini, planet of the twins. So the wrecking ball of the planet against established structure. I mean, the symbolic, the symbolism really couldn't be better. Mm. Although nobody, no astrologer, uh, to my knowledge, ever uh, predicted anything like the Twin Cities happening um, specifically. Mm. So, and I think, you know, I could go on and on with examples, um, but I, I think very seriously. Now, there are a couple of things here. I mean, people are reluctant to it because um, um, people are reluctant to view life in a completely fatalistic way. And astrology used to be a lot more fatalistic, you know, now they look at a chart and say, well, you're gonna die in prison. 
Um, and today, they're, they're, they're much more, um, you know, they're, they're much more open-ended than that. Um, but even so, people kind of feel, you know, I'm, if I'm being kind of operated on by all these unseen forces, you know, what the hell is going on? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, <laughs> of course, in the end, we don't really know what the hell is going on. And uh, mm -hmm. you know, who likes to be reminded of that? Speaking of unseen forces, I know people are fascinated with the topic of ghosts, angels, spirits, um, you know, kind of otherworldly beings. And you touch on that a little bit in the book. Could you go there for us? Yeah. Um, the existence of ghosts, spirits, unseen entities uh, is uh, basically a universal belief. Only the kind of you know, scientific West does not believe in them because, um, you know, it's something that can't be seen with the five senses. Although, as I've suggested, um, yeah, we do have more senses than five. Everybody does. And uh, we have been, um, we've crippled ourselves in the last couple of year, hundred years in the West by just refusing to believe any of this. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think they exist. Um, uh, are, are some of them imagination yeah but i mean frankly it is very 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 common um for people to have a feast loved one appear to them usually fairly soon after death or, or make their presence known in some form this is just like really really common um when i was editor of gnosis we used to get people write send these articles we didn't really publish that kind of story but people sent them anyway largely because they probably didn't have anybody else to tell them to you tell yeah, them yes. family, they're just going to say, oh, yeah, you're crazy. Um, so this is very much a real part of people's lives. Uh, and, uh, you know, our, our cultural um, habit is to just sort of set it aside and not think too much about it because um, it uh, suggests the existence of a world that's very different from the, um, you know, you know, Mr. Business American type world that um, we think we live in. I want to dive into something that's just a minor topic, and that is evil. What is it? Is it a real, is there an entity? Some people believe in a devil. I personally don't, but what do you th think about that? I don't believe in a personal devil in, you know, in a kind of theological sense. Uh, I do believe in thought forms. Uh, you can generate a thought, an image in your mind. And if you can invest it with a certain amount of energy, life forces, prana sometimes, uh, it can seem very, very real. Well, guess what? If a lot of people are sending this kind of energy to this um, idea of the devil, uh, yeah, it can seem very, very real. Does it have like an ontological existence and kind of a, you know, this, in uh, the way we do? I don't really think so but it's a very, very powerful image. Um, as for evil, um, the human condition is an experience of good and evil. The, the world is not um, either fundamentally good or fundamentally evil. It is a mixture of the two. Uh, and uh, we came down, even according to the myth of Genesis, we came down to this level to experience it. And you know, I'm gonna say just categorically, straight out about you two whom I know nothing about, anybody who's listening whom I know nothing about. As for me, you have experienced some good and some evil in your lives. I can say that with 100% certainty. Uh, yeah, I know that the, 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 the ratios vary and that, that's a, a big subject in itself. 
but we all experience some measure of some good and some evil in our lives. In a sense, that's, um, well, it's either the human predicament or the reason we're here. You tell, you, you say that fundamentalism marks the death throes of a religion. And I wondered if you could comment on that. You could say bad religion dries out good. Um, as more and more thoughtful people have uh, abandoned Christian theology. And that's because it makes no sense in its current form. My book of theology love says that. I mean, the whole idea is, is basically ridiculous. God got mad at the human race for eating piece of fruit in Armenia 6,000 years ago, condemned everybody to hell. And then, oh, by the way, he kind of felt bad about it. So he sent part of himself down here, had it tortured to death. And somehow that made it all right, except it really doesn't, because unless you believe this nonsense, you're going to go to hell anyway. Does that make sense in any? No. I mean, you can, it, it's put in these you know, glorious creeds and uh, you know, hymns and whatnot, but it's basically ridiculous. And that's why I wrote a theology of love, because I believe A Course in Miracles presents a Christian theology that is not ridiculous. It is consistent and intelligent. But as people, more and more people, intelligent, thoughtful people are leaving this religion, well, who's left? Oh, and by the way, the people who are left, who are not necessarily the most intelligent or well-informed people, are going to start to feel increasingly threatened. Because, hey, you know, uh, you know the consensus is, is no longer with us. So what do you get? You get uh, paranoia uh, versions of fundamentalism, which is pretty much what we have. The concept of we're all one, um, what, did, uh, what do you mean by that in terms of the philosophy about that? It's a, it's a difficult concept to get your mind around because on the physical level, no, we're simply not all one, right? You're sitting, you're, you're sitting at your home, um, you know, uh, in your room, and I'm sitting here. Uh, how are we one in that sense? So we're not uh, on, on the physical level. And I would say this is what a lot of meditative practice is meant to do. You go back into yourself. Uh, and then you kind of experience what um, sometimes called the self with a capital S with uh, what uh, some uh, the Hindus call the Atman, the true I. And if you follow this f back far enough, you start to realize that it is the same in everyone. In the New Age world, it's, this is often called Christ consciousness, although often people use this term without knowing exactly what it means. But of course, it, it sets reality on its side because it means that which is most intimately me is exactly what I most deeply share with everybody else. And the English language is not well set up to express that concept. Nonetheless, I think it, it's at the core of all great religious traditions. And it, because it's true, it has to be universally true. And if it's universally true, a lot of people will have discovered it in their own ways and different times and given it different names, which they did. So having journeyed on some of the darker sides here, I, I'm wondering about talking about the theology of love. What is the importance of, of love to you in this spiritual context? I actually wrote a book called Conscious Love. Um, it's basically the realization of what I was just talking about. Uh, the, this kind of intuition that we are all one. Um, it's often unconscious or felt merely instinctively. Uh, sometimes it is felt consciously and expressed consciously, and then you get what are some of the, the world's great humanitarians. As they all basically kind of said something like this, right? Um, so if you understand this, either 
consciously or at least intuitively, the natural response is love. And that's why love is so important. Uh, you know, this is why God is love. All you need is love. I mean, you know, people say those things and it just sounds like, you know, so many times it just sounds like a Valentine card. Um, but if you understand this kind of deeply, and I, I, I believe many people do it at some level. I mean, I think that's what basic human decency is about. If you have no sense of this, if you have no sense of other people, you're communist with other people, you become what um, is uh, diagnosed as a, a sociopath. So that's at the core of it. Mm -hmm. And the idea in a theology of love, which uh, expresses many of the ideas of A Course in Miracles, is that um, God is love. God created us out of love. God never condemned us. We collectively as a human race if, uh, wanted to, as it were, know what good and evil was like, see what it was like to live without God, to live separated from God. And this is the world you get. And why is this world so crazy? Well, according to A Course in Miracles, uh, because it's a crazy idea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The idea that you could be separate from God makes no sense. Mm -hmm. And your mind has an enormous amount of power. So you can convince yourself it's true. But all you do is start generating a crazy world. And if you have seven people, billion people doing this, uh, why are things wrong? Why is everything so wrong today? Well, this explains it pretty well. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, Richard, there's just there's so much to talk to you about. And this this book is so rich. It's been wonderful having you on Big Universe today. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. And you can learn more about Richard Smalley at www innerchristianity.com and get his latest book the truth about magic you know we have a mutual connection um in full disclosure i'm working with gnd uh, media and uh, i know that you have videos going up soon oh. about this on uh, on vimeo and and i know you thrive here might also carry some of that as well so oh, um so very much looking forward to that uh great. for more for more great information about sarah bowen go to spiritual-rebel.com I've got premium video courses and videos, and I help to create them on my site called youthrivehere.com. Thanks, Richard, and thanks, everybody. I'm Jim Lefter. We'll talk to you next time on Big Universe on Unity Online Radio. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio the voice of an awakening world. Hey, it's Radley Valentine. Join me for a brand new way of connecting with your angels on my new podcast, The Angel Tarot Show. Each week, you'll meet your angelic guides and guardians and find new ways to unlock unconditional love, tune into your intuitive abilities, and create the joy-filled life that, well, you've always wanted. Plus, you'll get a useful and timely energetic weather report, bringing you guidance for the coming week. Tap into the healing, hope, and guidance that's all around you on The Angel Tarot Show, exclusively on mindbodyspirit.fm.